today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Last week we covered the uh, kerfuffle going on in Queen's Park about uh, the Doug Ford's uh, government's announcement to uh, kill the basic income project. And uh, then, of course, uh, the, the the backtracking on this where they said, well, no, we never committed to it. Well, yeah, they did. They did. Absolutely they did. As a matter of fact, uh, two or three times during the election campaign. Uh, you may remember her name, uh, Melissa Lansman. Uh, she was the spokesperson uh, for Doug Ford uh, during the, the campaign. Uh, for, brother, she was a former broadcaster, of course, and uh, she herself actually said, when you said, you sure you're going to do this now? You're not going to back out and, and cancel this? And uh, this is before the election, of course, where she said, absolutely not. Uh, we look forward to seeing the results. We want to see this carried through. Well, bingo, they, they knocked this thing down. Now, there were protests at Queen's Park, a couple of them last week. There are petitions being signed right now, hoping that the government may change their mind again and reinstitute the program. I'm not so sure how effective that's going to be. But there's also an interesting twist to this in a uh, Toronto Star editorial uh, from the weekend that uh, that I want to talk about. Should Ottawa step in to save Ontario's basic income pilot? Uh, the Ford government shut this down, of course, uh, before they had any data whether or not it was going to be effective or not. But now there's some uh, rumor that maybe the federal government should be petitioned to come in here and take over the project, at least until the pilot part of it is done in another year and a half or so. Joining us to talk about that idea is uh, Laura Kateri, who is the chair of social policy for the working group of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Laura, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you on the show today. Great to be here. Before we get into the wrinkle about asking Ottawa and, and wondering if the federal government can't involved, uh, I haven't talked to you for a while about this. I'd like to get your reaction to what happened with the government's announcements to, uh, to ice this project in the first place. Uh, it's absolutely devastating. It's a project that has been a long time in the making. Um, there are a lot of supporters, not only in Ontario, but across Canada, um, to revive going back really to the 70s to min-income project. And with the change in the labor market, um, and how jobs are becoming um, more and more precarious, it becomes more important to look at this as a better way to supplement a really unstable labor market. Well, what we've tried to do, and I know you have attempted to do, and others that have been advocates for this program, is to tell stories about people that have actually enrolled in this program and how it has had a positive impact on their lives. And, and I know we've had the opportunity to do some of that, which is why I'm baffled by the government's, uh, you know, stand on this, that, well, it's, it was failing. We, we didn't see any evidence that anything good was happening out of this. Well, the interesting thing is, as far as we know, there have been no first-year evaluations yet. So we're a bit puzzled ourselves as to where the evidence is that this was not working. And you're right, our local stories, we do have a wonderful group of speakers called Living Proof, um, who have come forward and shared, you know, some of their personal history and um, some of their current activity and showing us the value of stabilizing people's lives, um, making sure that they have a safe home to live in, making sure they have enough food to eat, and in some instances, being able to afford a new coat and boots for the winter just to keep warm. Um, so I, when, when I see these people not only stabilizing and then taking the next step and looking towards their future, uh, either getting mental health help, 
uh, or directly looking at education to make sure they have the skills and competency to go out and get a job that will really support them. But notwithstanding those stories, and notwithstanding, I, I think, the efforts, uh, not just by the previous government, but by Senator Hugh Siegel, who, by the way, is a conservative, who right. is actually one of the architects of this program and has been advocating for this for years, you see, Laura, as I certainly do, on social media uh, and, and op-ed columns by uh, some of the, the more right-wing types to say, look, this is just free money for people that don't want to work and, and just want a, a handout. That characterization is still there. And interesting, uh, as you know, the Hamilton Roundtable partnered uh, to a certain degree with the government to help bring people into um, the program. And part of that stipulation was that they were looking to get, and I believe they did meet this mark, um, about two-thirds, 70% of people already working, uh, what we call the working poor in Hamilton, um, those were the people that predominantly were signed up for the program. So this isn't about sloth or laziness. Uh, it, it isn't about money for nothing. This is about what happens, A, first and foremost, to people's health when you remove the stress of living with low income, um, where people are experiencing deprivation, even if they are working. Um, Without these answers, we're not going to understand why our health care costs keep going up exponentially. Uh, we're not going to figure out why people are not returning to school to upgrade skills, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot of the answers would lie in a three-year pilot. And, and that's all part of the discussion that we had uh, you know, in, in the early days, uh, the preliminary days of, of, of this pilot project. And uh, it just seems to have fallen on deaf ears. I mean, there are some people that are still clinging to stereotypes that we heard from a previous government in the mid-1990s when they arbitrarily slashed social service rates. Oh, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling for me that we, we've gone back to this rhetoric. A lot of my work over uh, all these years has been to show that the, the stereotypes are not true, and yet here we have a government trotting them out yet again as if we haven't had this conversation for the past 15 years. Um, there is a point uh, in income where you get so low that you actually trap people in poverty. Um, uh, Minister McLeod cited, you know, exit rates from the system. Well, Yes, I agree, they're, they're abysmal. But that doesn't prove that people are lazy. That proves that it's so low. People live in survival mode, not being able to look past the current day for food and shelter. Uh, we don't want people in that circumstance, especially not if we want them to job hunt or do the skills training they need to move forward. So where do you go from here? I know that, as you say, there are a number of petitions that are, are circulating around here. Uh, and, and in other parts of the province right now, especially in those areas where the pilot project was actually undertaken. Uh, is it going to have any impact at all? Are you hopeful? We're hoping they're listening, for sure. Uh, we're hoping that they understand that this really isn't a partisan issue, that there are people across the political spectrum that really want to see the results of this pilot. 
And failing that, um, understanding um, if you really do want to behave compassionately and ethically, that people that have signed leases for apartments, they won't be able to afford if they're going back to social assistance or if they're going back to a regular job, the, the jobs they may have left to go back to school in September. Um, they have made major commitments based on the fact that this was supposed to be three years. So, yes, we hope they're listening, and we hope the feds are listening as well. Well, because one of the criticisms I've heard from some of our callers when we've talked about this in the past has been simply that. Look, if you don't like the salary you're making, go and improve your skills, and that way you'll get a better job. Well, how are you supposed to do that if you have to pay rent? I mean, you need a job to, to exist on a daily basis. You can't just up and quit and simply say, well, don't worry about the rent. I'm sure my landlord's not going to want it as long as I'm in school. That's, 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 <laughs> that's folly, but that seems to be the premise they're working on. Yeah, it's, you can't have it both ways. And the interesting thing about the pilot is that first the, the federal government said it was making people lazy, and then they said everyone was leaving the pilot, and that's why it was failing. And both answers, you, you can't have it both ways. Is it people are lazy or people are leaving the money? And it, all of the arguments really don't make sense. I mean, I'd love to see the memos. I'd love to see what numbers they have that haven't been shared with us as community partners. We'd like to see what's going on in our city. So if they really do have that evidence, I'd love them to share it. Well, if they have that evidence, my first question would be from where did they get it? Uh, because, because there's no report available. Absolutely. I mean, we have evaluators in our city. We've, we've worked with the evaluation teams. Uh, if it's not coming from them, where is this information coming from? How many people are we actually talking about that left the pilot? Um, I don't, uh, I'm not against evidence-based choices, but at the moment I don't see any evidence, and I'd really like them to share that. Well, when I hear stuff like this and governments making arbitrary announcements like that without any data to substantiate it, it, it does remind me of, of 1995 when Mike Harris, who was that time the newly minted premier of the province, uh, just stated, look, 33% of the people on social assistance are scamming the system. And, and that was his justification for slashing the rates. Uh, there was no data to substantiate that. In fact, when they did study it, they found out I think it was like 2.5%, not 33% of people yeah. that, that may have been abusing the system, which, which uh, you know, uh, any clear-thinking government would say, whoops, I guess we were wrong. But no, that, that, that was gone. That was over the, you know, that was water under the bridge at that stage. And I wonder if we're going down on that same road again. Well, I believe we are going down that road again. Uh, the minister in one news conference uh, specifically stated uh, $100 million in fraud, which would be um, 1% of the system. And so are we going to scrap, and we've talked about this on your show, the Income Security Roadmap for Change and all the important good work that not the Liberal government, but advocates like myself, professionals uh, in the field, sat down to write, are we going to scrap all the things that would make it a better system, uh, help people off the system, give people who need longer-term supports better supports to manage their lives because of 1%. I mean, they're, literally, numerically, it means 99% are not fraudsters. 
and are we going to punish them again? And I hope not, and we'll definitely fight against that. Yeah, and I know, and I know that number that you just quoted uh, may seem like a big number, and it is when you're talking tax dollars money, it is, but it's 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 insignificant in, uh, compared to the amount of money, for instance, that, that high-income people are scamming the government from, and, the, you know, there's so many people that aren't paying taxes and, and are delinquent in taxes that in those tax brackets. The government doesn't seem to want to do anything about that, but, boy, the people in the lower-income levels are easy to pick on, I, say, I suppose. Well, it's, very, it's much easier to pick on them because they have less of a voice, usually, um, it's also easy to pick on them because there's already um, a bootstrap mentality out there that, you know, well, I had a tough time and I made it through and, you know, you just go out and look for a job the same way and we don't actually look for jobs the same way we did 30 years ago. Um, there are no more industrial roads that you can walk down door to door with your resume and get a general labor job that easily. Uh, in the old days, you could walk down the street, and by the end of the afternoon, you would have had a job. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, it's highly skilled. Even things that are uh, more manual are still highly skilled now. Um, and the way they expect you to apply is much different, and the competition is much higher. So it's... I I actually get irritated having to justify this again over and over again. The world has changed, and we do need help. Um, we need regulations that help people through labor. We don't want to see um, the gains we have disappear, uh, especially over the past year through the fight for 15 and fairness. Um, a lot of these things make sure that people that do get jobs... Yeah, but listen, that's, it's because people are buying this up, because maybe that's what they want to hear to justify this. As you and I are talking right now, Laura, I'm getting emails from people saying, we can't afford to give people money for nothing. In spite of the fact that you just mentioned, these are people that are working, but they're not making so, enough money to be able to pay their rent and buy groceries. That, again, so, there's that stereotype that they're sitting on their duffs doing nothing. So let me get right to it, because we've got a little bit of time left here. Can I uh, give you one stat? No, so no, of course million, they can't. Fifty million dollars a year is point zero three percent of Ontario's revenues in one year. Well, that puts it in perspective. It so, does. what about this idea of the federal government picking up the ball here and saying, "Look, if 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 the Ontario government's not going to do this, we'll finish this project." I think that's a fabulous idea. We're waiting on the feds for a national poverty reduction strategy right now. Uh, we know Minister Duclos is interested in evidence uh, and evidence-based systems. We see through the feds income security that works, especially for children. It's called the Canada Child Benefit. Children in Canada already have a basic income, and seniors have a basic income called old age security. And if it's not enough and they don't have enough sources, they have GIS. Uh, we're already doing this. What we know, we have an EI system that fails approximately 75 to 80% of people in Hamilton. Um, we need something else, and I think this is the perfect pilot for the pets. Well, it, it actually gives them a program, since they're looking for data, for half the price. In other words, this thing is almost half over right now. They really just have to pick up and finish it off and then accrue that information and make a determination about what federal policies they can, they can act. Absolutely. 
Well, that's logic, and I'm not sure, sure just how much logic actually goes into political decisions, but it makes an awful lot of sense. But it, we, we still have to overcome this this idea, though, that people are still perpetuating that these are these are well. Let's use the term that gets thrown out there: welfare bums. Yeah, well, we know seventy percent of them aren't, and even the people that we see that have come off of social assistance to try this pilot, it has been more successful in getting them job ready. Some have already got jobs. Some are returning to school. We see the impact in the first six months that they've had income. By the way, I want to, just on a point of clarification, when you say 70% are not welfare bums, to use that phrase, uh, that some people may construe, well, that means 30% of them are. There are some of these people that are on Ontario Disability Support, which means they are, yes. for some physical reason or, or some reason, cannot work. I mean, and that's been deemed by authorities. That's not somebody claim somebody can make. Uh, you have to, to, to make that determination. So those people may not be able to work or may only be work, able to work limited amounts of time. Uh, and, of course, they're paid accordingly, which means they don't make a subsistence wage. So, once again, don't let that, that old stereotype that these guys are doing nothing and want money uh, to be the pervading uh, theory here, because it's just not true. Yeah, no, it, and I apologize to anyone listening. Um, it was getting fed up of just trying to fight that word every time it comes up in a sentence or that phrase, welfare bums. Yes, half of them... Of the 30, approximately half are people that live with disabilities. Um, and the point of the pilot, if, if we can backtrack, the point of the pilot is not to see how many people work. It's to see the impact of income on health, first and foremost. So even if people can't work full-time and they have a disability, uh, will their lives improve enough that it has an impact on health? Are we going to save money in other areas? And how do they engage in the community when they have a bit more money? And are their lives more fulfilling? Is that how they perceive it? Uh, all of this has impacts in other government budget columns. And focusing solely on a job, especially in some people haven't even been on the pilot for six months because of the uh, rolling rollout of the program. So you're not going to see job uh, information in less than six months, uh, especially people with disabilities. So yeah, we, we need to get all the data and not let um, opinion trump fact. Well, and therein lies the problem. I mean, when when a government just arbitrarily cuts this and says it's not working, you have to wonder if it's because they're afraid to actually see that data because it might actually legitimize the program. We'll see how the Fed step up on this, Laura. Thanks, as always, for the time. Greatly appreciated. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening. Laura Katari from the uh, Social Policy Working Group uh, talking about the uh, the wage program, of course, that the uh, the Ford government has already nixed. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some disturbing news, I guess, uh, well, from Twitter, of course, which is how Trump communicates. Uh, on the Friday, uh, Donald Trump launched a fresh threat of auto tariffs against Canada if NAFTA negotiations fail. Canada, as we've talked about, has been absent from the negotiations this summer as the U.S. and Mexico are hashing out a deal, and Trump says they're very close to doing something like that. Uh, and he uh, then tweeted that Canada is just going to have to wait. So what's going on here? And, and is he really putting us in the crosshairs once again? 
Let's talk to Marvin Ryder about this, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Marvin, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Glad to be here, Bill. There's, there's, there's radio silence or Twitter silence from Trump for about 15, 20 minutes a day and then right back at it. Uh, in, a, in a broader sense, what is happening here where we really seem to be, uh, I, I guess, the, the, the target of a lot of his scorn? It, I mean, there's even some speculation last week that even this, this tiff we're having with Saudi Arabia right now may have been inspired by Donald Trump to try to get back at Canada. I mean, that may sound just like, like we're being a little paranoid, but nothing's impossible, I suppose. No, this is a this is a man, for instance, that's being investigated for collusion with Russia, and depending upon who you are, some people even see him as a puppet of Russia. So it's not that hard to believe that uh, maybe he colluded with the the Saudis. But to stick strictly to the topic of NAFTA, um, I, I would try to get people to calm down from this tweet on Friday. It is absolutely true that for the last week to ten days, uh, NAFTA talks have been only between Mexico and the United States. Now. Why that does not worry me is that there were some very specific Mexican requirements that Donald Trump wanted in NAFTA that had nothing to do with Canada. And with a new president, uh, President Lopez Obrador, having been elected, though he doesn't get sworn in until December, they were trying to meet with his people and sort some of these out. For instance, uh, Donald Trump wants Mexico to raise its minimum wage quite significantly because uh, he feels wages are just simply too low in the United States, and he wants that in the NAFTA agreement. He wants uh, Mexico to agree to reduce its, quote, illegal immigration. I put quotes around that bill because it's legal immigration. No one thinks people are actually sneaking across the border. It's just that once they get into the United States legally, many of them outstay their visas. That's when it becomes illegal immigration. And then the third thing, of course, remember that ever popular, he wants Mexico to pay for the wall. And he wanted that in there. So he's got lots to talk to with Mexico without us. And to think that even though we're not at the table, that we, Canada, are not talking to Mexico and talking to the American trade representatives, I think are crazy. Uh, they have been assured, Canada has been assured, that as soon as they sort out some of these big, big items with Mexico, then they're going to bring us back to the table and finish the things that are truly three-party agreements. And, that, and that's really what I think is going there. Now, Trump's last part of his tweet which got everybody afraid Friday, was he said something to the effect of, of the tariff barriers are too high in Canada, the restrictions are too high. If you don't watch out, I'm going to put on trade sanctions, uh, tariffs, excuse me, on the auto sector. Yes, that would be devastating for Canada. Absolutely, that would be devastating for Canada. But what people don't realize, it would also be devastating to the United States. So, yes, if he wanted to try this, he could put us into a recession, but at the same time he'd put himself in a recession. His own automobile companies, for GM Chrysler have begged him, please do not do this. We rely on imported automobiles. In some cases, up to 40% of their sales are imported automobiles. This does not help us to do this. I don't think Trump's going to do it, but for the moment, he can wave it around like a threat because that's the way Donald Trump likes to negotiate. He likes to threaten you, cajole you, sort of back you into a corner so you'll make concessions to him. Canada, from the beginning, has played our, our cards. We haven't played his cards. We haven't played the game his way. I think we're doing a fine job, and I would tell people, don't deviate from it. He's trying to scare you. Don't let him do that. A couple of things, and, and you're absolutely right. Obviously, scare tactics is part of the, of the way this guy operates. But but one of his other weapons, I guess, is, is misinformation. Just to t a couple of the points you've talked about here. Uh, he wants Mexico to increase the minimum wage. Well, that will take away their competitive advantage when it comes to attracting businesses, wouldn't it? 
it would. Now, now look, uh, I don't think he's trying to get them to take it up to what our, say, our minimum wage of $14 an hour is or the American minimum wages of, of 9 or $10 an hour, but he, he wants them to increase it. So if I was President Lopez Obrador, I could agree to that. i say over five years I could increase it by, uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be in American dollars, uh, uh, $1 or $2. There might be a way around that. And, and from what I understand, even though Mr. Trump tweeted that the new president of Mexico is a great guy and the negotiations are going really well, as far as I'm hearing, uh, there's not been a whole lot of movement. So his perception may be quite different than the reality that Mexico has not been kowtowing, Mexico has not been coming to the table cap in hand, begging for a deal. They're holding pretty firm on many of their ideas as well. All right, and the other element to this is uh, is about uh, people that are working beyond their work visas and simply staying. And, and he's got a legitimate point there, but... But, and here's with this is where a little bit of information, which is incorrect information, comes into play. Uh, Mexico is not the country that does that more than anybody else. Canada is. There are more Canadians that do that than there are Mexicans. Yet Trump simply is, you know, obviously his focus is on Mexico right now, so he's using that as a tool. Well, his, his focus changes depending upon what he needs domestically. So let's remember that we're moving into these midterm elections. Uh, he has been going out on the campaign trail, and in fact, I think over the next two months, expect to see him out in many places campaigning, holding campaign-style rallies. They're not to re-elect him. That's too early to talk about re-electing Trump. But it is to get Republicans elected either in Senate races or House races. So, for instance, if he's in Wisconsin, if he's in Michigan, if he's in Minnesota, expect him to talk up Canada, that evil country with those dairy trade restrictions. We've got to break them up and let your, your milk flow into Canada. Now, if he's in Arizona, if he's in California... If he's in Texas, he's more likely going to poke at Mexico because they're, they're the evil empire that he can maybe score some points against here. And remember, again, his base loves this kind of stuff. They love tough talk. They love someone who bluffs and blusters. They don't really measure because, of course, they don't believe that the news is properly measuring these things. They take Trump's measurements as, as the de facto truth. So you know, he'll use us as a whipping boy if he can score points at home. He'll use Europe if he can score points at home. He'll use whoever he has to to score points, and I just don't think we should worry about it. Well, except for the fact that he does act on some of these threats from time to time, and you know the aluminum steel tariffs come into mind right off the bat, and you know, and when he's when he's complaining, for instance, as he did on that tweet you just referenced, that you know, well, Canada's tariffs and trade barriers are too high. Well, he's talking about the stuff that we did in response to the to the tariffs he put in place, isn't he? It, to some extent, it's true. Now, he is also talking, for instance, with dairy. Canada has a deal with the United States on dairy that a certain amount of, of American milk and uh, poultry products, etc., come into this Canada free, duty-free, up to a certain point. And then we put a quota. And if America exceeds that quota, then yes, we do put a very high tariff, two, three hundred percent on American milk. But that's simply because we don't want that milk flooding into Canada. If Americans are not efficient in their production, meaning matching their supply to their demand, then why should we get it all dumped into us? So, you know, we have correct uh, uh, barriers. The other one that Donald Trump loves to talk about is, of course, the, the duty-free limit. Remember the old story about the shoes and Canadians smuggling yeah. shoes back? Fair enough. It is, it is absolutely true. An American can come to Canada, buy $800 worth of products on one afternoon, bring them back in the United States, no tariffs. If we do that in an afternoon, we'd be, be hit all over the place. 
and I do think we need to raise what is called this de minimis, the de minimis, the minimum amount I can bring in before I have to pay tariffs. I think we should raise it. Right now, if you buy something from, say, Amazon.com, not Amazon.ca, Amazon.com, it's over $25. Uh, Canada Post or whoever's delivering the parcel is supposed to collect duty from you. That's an old limit and really should be changed. But we, we, Canada, are prepared to change it only in the course of a negotiation. I'll give you that one. You give me something. And, of course, what Trump does instead is he picks the ones that we should be moving on, and he doesn't talk about the things that he should be moving on. Well, I, I, I hesitate to ask this question because, I mean, we all know that on a, on a, on a philosophical level that the president is supposed to be informed daily of what, what's going on in these negotiations, but we also know that, that, that Trump doesn't listen. He doesn't even ask. He doesn't read daily briefings, doesn't often ask about this. So I'm wondering if, if, if he does know what's going on with these negotiations. I wonder if he does know that even though uh, Lighthizer and Freeland may not be meeting with each other, that there are meetings and discussions still going on with Canadian officials. Yeah, I, I, look, uh, you're absolutely right here, Bill. The, the two people that I am most concerned about, if they were tweeting, I'd be reading their trees quite closely, is Robert Lighthizer. He's basically like an ambassador who does these trade negotiations. And then Wilbur Ross, who's the Commerce Secretary, they're the ones who day in and day out really have control of this file. Now, they brief him, but as you pointed out, these are oral briefings, and they are part of everything. So in other words, the, the international people come in and they talk about the state of, of politics that way, the domestic people, the economic people. We would probably get five minutes of this, and I'm sure it's highly distilled down for whatever he hears as well in these oral briefings. So Trump, Trump is Trump. Trump is going to put these tweets out. I think the best thing we can do is, is pay less attention to them. I think it's fascinating. His NAFTA tweets are almost completely ignored in the United States. The average American doesn't even know what those five letters stand for. Where here in Canada, it's become so important to us, we parse every word that he makes and, and almost tremble when he comes down from the mountain with one of these tweets. And I, I just don't think we should give them that much credibility. Uh, we've got a really strong person in Christia Freeland. I can't say that enough. I trust her from here to the moon and back. She is a wonderful, wonderful person. She's doing a wonderful job on this, and I'm paying more attention to her tweets than anything Donald Trump says. Do you believe the stories that we heard about a week or so ago that says that we're actually closer to a deal than we were, I guess, ever have been, really? Yeah, so there's been a lot of uh, very positive words released, both from the Mexican trade representatives and the newly elected president of the United States, or president of Mexico, and uh, uh, Mr. Lighthizer and a fellow named uh, uh, Munchen. He's the, the uh, Secretary of Treasury. Uh, I love the fact that they've got a positive feeling about this. And what they have said, Bill, is that they think a deal, a NAFTA deal, a three-party NAFTA deal, could be done by the end of this month. Well, how am I going to dislike that positive feeling? I hope it's done by the end of this month, too. But the reality, Bill, as you and I have talked about, there are a lot of things that have got to change over the next three weeks to make that a reality. We've got to talk about the sunset clause. We've got to talk about dispute resolution. We've got to sort out supply management on the dairy side. We've got uh, some things on intellectual property rights that we've got to sort out. There are some big issues here, not, let, not alone the auto sector. If we can make all that happen in three weeks, God bless. But that feels to me like a lot to do in a very short period of time. 
But, look, if they're feeling positive, let's take advantage of it. And, and I'm sure Christia Freeland is ready to drop everything and anything. You know, she's on summer vacation to fly to Washington or wherever she has to go on a heartbeat to keep these negotiations going. Maybe Mexico can unlock something, and when that happens, everything else all falls away and, and the deal can come together. I just, I'm just a little too far away to know what that magic locket is. Well, and to that point, though, and, and, and again, if we are to ignore Trump's bombast on this and simply, you know, concentrate on, on what Lighthizer and Freeland are telling us right now, which, by the way, is not very much because they've been pretty tight-lipped. Right. Is there a possibility that some of those things you've just talked about as the more contentious items have been resolved? We just don't know about it? Well, I think the, the Mexican negotiations, the American and Mexican negotiations, would really solve an awful lot of the auto industry problems. And if they can find a formula that works with Mexico, probably it's going to work fine for Canada. Uh, maybe as well with Mexico, they're sorting out some of the things on the sunset clause. Maybe they're even talking to Mexico about the dispute resolution. It's quite possible that if they can get Mexico on board, they may have solved three or four of the five or six that we've got outstanding. The one that, of course, that is our unique one is supply management. I don't think anything they're talking about with Mexico. And it is also fair to say that Trump in negotiations likes to play one party against another. So if he's got everything solved with Mexico and the only thing outstanding, say, is our supply management system, he would put a lot of pressure on Canada to move. I think we're prepared to move somewhat. Whether it's enough to satisfy him, I don't know. But uh, the, this, this, these negotiations correctly should be carried on behind closed doors, not in a Twitter feed. But is, is the U.S. willing to put a little water in their wine and say, okay, uh, we'll, you can get rid of supply management over a, a, a X number of years, as opposed well, to bingo, bango, end it? Yeah, I, I think the answer here, Bill, is that the, the auto sector one is the big one. Uh, for all of us here in Canada the United States, the auto sector really drives our economy. If he can fix whatever he sees is wrong with the auto sector, he may be prepared to water down everything else. That, to me, is really the linchpin. And if Mexico can make something happen here, the rest of these things may all fall together quickly. Yeah, but that's, that's you, uh, with your expertise looking <laughs> at that. I, I'm not so sure if Trump cows that as a because he rarely talks about that, except to use it as a as a club as a potential threat but he keeps talking about supply management yeah fair, fair enough but I, I again I'm I, I don't really worry about Trump because we're not negotiating with Trump we're negotiating with Robert Lighthizer and Wilbur Ross and if they can get a deal that they like and they feel they can sell to the boss I think this boss will drink the Kool-Aid and, and take it. Remember, again, Trump in his a year and a half, almost two years in office now, has shown tremendous inconsistencies. I want X, and then he settles for Y. He, he wants to get a deal. He is the art of the deal. And if he can get a deal that works on most levels, even if it doesn't work on all levels, he'll call it a victory and move on. So I really pay more attention to Lighthizer and Russ. What was going to take to make them happy? If they're happy, I think they can sell the boss on it. Marvin Ryder at the DeGridge School of Business. Thanks as always, Marvin. My pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a, a Nanos research poll that uh, just came out over the weekend. Nanos uh, is, is, of course, Nick Nanos, uh, the uh, Canadian uh, uh, federal pollster who has done a number of different polls and uh, is generally perceived to be one of the most accurate polling companies in Canada uh, when it comes to who's supporting who and et cetera, et cetera. Well, this new Nanos research poll indicates that most Canadians opposing provinces that are going to take the, go the federal government to court, especially over the issue of carbon taxes. Uh, we know, of course, that right now that the new Ontario government and the Saskatchewan government are joining together in a court battle, uh, hopefully trying to prove that Ottawa is exceeding its jurisdiction to impose a carbon tax on the provinces 
who don't install their own. That's a federal policy that was announced by the Trudeau government some time ago. And uh, the uh, uh, corollary to that was they said, look, if you have your own carbon-reducing plan, you don't necessarily have to be part of, of our plan. Well, Ontario did that, of course. The wind government put cap-and-trade in place and said, well, that's, that'll do. Then we don't have to go on on side with the federal government program. Well, of course, we know that uh, the Doug Ford government is canceling cap-and-trade, debating that bill right now in the Ontario legislature, and, and saying that they're going to sue and saying, look, we don't want the carbon tax anyway because we don't think the federal government has the jurisdiction to do that. This poll seems to indicate that uh, that the two governments that want to challenge the government on carbon pricing uh, may be swimming up st- the stream against the flow of popular opinion. I'm going to talk to Christo Avalos about this, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Um, Let me ask you right off bat on a, on a philosophical level. Uh, how much weight do you, as, as uh, somebody who studies uh, political science, uh, take in, into public opinion polls? I mean, they, it, I guess what a lot of people can be skeptical about this, and, and uh, is is the result and is the, uh, the, 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 the message from these really in the eye of the beholder? I mean, it's tricky. I mean, you know, I, I think polls do have value because... You know, even if the even if you have questions about their accuracy, you know, you can always study from a historical or contemporary perspective how politicians respond to them, how, you know, polls can affect other people. Because in a sense, if you hear a poll with a certain result um, and you hear the majority of your fellow citizens feel a certain way on an issue, it might sway you. You might think, oh, well, if 60 percent of people agree on something. Maybe it's for a good reason. We can have all of those debates. Another factor is, of course, you know, even though, you know, certain pollsters have very good reputations, um, one of the things that, you know, you look for in an election, for instance, is, is similar trending results among different pollsters who sometimes use different methodologies, whether they use fully online polls or fully Internet polls. They use a bit of both. Are they, are they talking to a diverse, you know, subset of Canadians? And if not, are they controlling for that? Those are the things you look for. So, you know, when you look at this poll, I think it certainly has something interesting to say, but, you know, it is only kind of one poll on this issue, so that's something to consider as well. Well, the two elements that I always try to look for, if we can gain the information, uh, is is obviously uh, what was the question? In other words, how is it phrased? Because let's face it, uh, the way in which you ask a question can oftentimes frame the answer that you're going to get. Yeah, no, certainly. I think that's definitely the case, and this is why sometimes you get something like a push poll. Maybe it's done by a certain advocacy group. The the company doing the poll could do all the methodological approaches correctly, but again, if the question is worded in a certain way, um, you know, for instance, do you do you support freedom, if you will? Um, if you word it that way, you'll probably do well. I'd probably get ninety percent. But if you word it in another way, which is to say, do you support a specific policy, which you know, a given political interest group would, you know, see as being a corollary to supporting freedom, you might get a more divided result. And again, here it could be, do you support, it could be mentioning Doug Ford, who isn't very popular, might lower the results. It could be mentioned of, you know, uh, the court challenge versus, you know, a different way of, of, of approaching the issue. All of those things could affect uh, people's perceptions. Maybe people feel like, you know, the use of the word court challenge conjures up, you know, an expensive trial where if you worded it as saying, you know, to explore uh, constitutional means, which is effectively the same thing in this case, would that mean, uh, would that give a more nuanced result? I mean, who knows? 
And again, you know, there are they, they call flash words, or hot words, and you know, tax. I mean, the very fact that word tax in there all of a sudden is going to be revolting to some people, and and that can frame this. I, I guess the other element we always have to take into consideration when we read any poll about anything that's going on right now is is they're non-binding. I mean, you know, these are usually done oftentimes through telephone, email, or by internet, whatever the case might be. Uh, but you can say whatever you want on there. Nobody's going to come back and say, well, you committed to that. So, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to give uh, an insightful answer just to be off the top of your head. Yeah, oh, sure, I'm, I'm supportive of that. Why not? Because you don't think yeah. it's going to have any direct impact on you at that time. No, no, certainly. That's that's certainly, uh, you know, a factor. This is one of the reasons why in Canada there's been, a, you know, a kind of call for why don't we do more exit polling. Uh, and exit polling tends to be quite accurate. Um, which is to say, you know, after an election, they do it a lot in Britain and the United States is where, you know, uh, people exiting polling stations, you know, will be selected to participate in a poll. And of course, those people could 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 misrepresent what they actually marked in the ballot bo- uh, in the ballot booth. But it tends to offer some really good insight about, you know, voting tendencies and what have you. And, and I think in this particular case, you know, you have to look at the fact that it is capturing a certain window of time. And, and we don't know the, the, the kind of full approach. But as you know, if there's a general conception, and maybe this is just speculation, that people generally have an aversion to the word tax, and yet here 60% of people oppose the Ford government's uh, and, the, and, the, and the Mo government's attempts to fight a tax, that might just show just how unpopular their position is. Because if, if the perception is that, well, Ford and Mo are really going out there trying to fight for the taxpayer against, uh, you know, the carb- the federal carbon tax. And that's not a popular decision. It makes you wonder, you know, uh, how difficult it would be for them to, to really sell this position. There's a, here's one th- other element to this, too, that I'm always intrigued by this, because obviously we've had this debate, at Christo, in Ontario for the, the last couple of months now, because it was a, a major uh, contentious issue in, in the previous provincial election, of course. Uh, and I'm wondering about how informed people are when they actually respond to these sorts of polls. Uh, and, and I'll use the case of the carbon tax, for instance. Uh, the, I mean, even during the campaign, Doug Ford kept saying he's going to kill the carbon tax. We don't have a carbon tax in Ontario. He he he, he was interrupt, interacting between, you know, the cap and trade and carbon tax and, and, and using them, uh, you know, to, to describe one another. And they're two very different ideologies. Uh, and if he was con- uh, confused by this, I, I, I got to assume a lot of voters were confused by it as well. No, that's certainly that's a, that's a fantastic point. I think in a lot of this, it's a it's a real balance um, by 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 you know calling it a carbon tax versus cap and trade. You might not get a full accuracy in what people know, but if the goal is to capture the public sentiment, then using the term carbon tax is probably a better option. Because whether or not it's accurate, it kind of has the cultural zeitgeist of the term. And as you know, Ford, during the election, didn't really talk about cap and trade. He talked about carbon tax. And again, whether that was just him not really knowing the difference or whether it was, you know, the the messaging was clearly that when they did their opinion polling internally and when they did their focus groups internally, you know, the, the word cap and trade didn't spark the kind of outrage that the word carbon tax did. And again, in our political system, um, the reality is that, you know, a majority of people oppose this policy, but it's about 40% that support it. And in our system, you only need about 40% of people to get you a majority government. And so Ford is in a really interesting position here because 
this is one of the few things he actually did promise and run on. So he kind of has to do something. And yet a majority of the population opposes him, just like a majority of the population opposes his very government. So it really is an interesting dynamic of, you know, when he is elected to represent Ontarians, does he enact policies to elect to represent, you know, the, the population or the, 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 the minority that voted for him? Yeah, that's, that's the politics of this, isn't it? it? Yeah, I mean, when, yeah. You, when you crunch the numbers like that, you can understand why the government's doing what they're doing. You're absolutely right. The numbers specifically in Ontario, by the way, uh, from the Nanos poll is 63% of respondents either strongly or somewhat support the idea of a carbon tax. Uh, and and you might think, well, why isn't the government reflecting that the you know the majority opinion? Because the the, the remaining thirty eight percent are probably solid conservative supporters, and they're looking for their guy to continue to uh, to follow through on the policy that he talked about during the campaign. So he's not playing to the majority; he's playing to his political base. Not the first time any politician's done that. No, no, certainly, and I think that's that's really a, a key factor here. Again, you know, in a first past the post system, and this is one of the reasons why a lot of people are still a little rankled by. Trudeau's broken promise is that, you know, in, in our current system, you can 38, 37, 36 sometimes, but, but usually in the mid to high 30s, um, you know, can give you 53% of the seats or more and, and therefore 100% of the power. And it creates a situation in which the government in some, on some issues, maybe not all, but I would say for this government on most of their key platform issues are actually governing for a minority of the province and therefore unrepresenting a majority of the views. And as you see on this issue, um, that's certainly the case. And again, it's a real tricky proposition because this isn't like their attack on the basic income. This isn't like, you know, some of the, the other uh, policies that we, we, might, we might see. This, this was something they, they ran on. So it's a difficulty. Do you keep the promise or do you represent the will of the electorate? And I think on this it's, it's probably what he can do. The, the court challenge, I don't think, will succeed. But, I mean, I, I, won't, I won't bet money on that, of course. But I don't think it will succeed. But the whole point is that all Ford has to do is just launch the challenge. There's no risk to him to do it. If he launches it and succeeds, well, then he'll, his base will get what they want. And if he launches it and fails, then the taxpayer has effectively paid for his massive political advertisement, which is to say... In, in, in so much as, uh, in, in a sense, that you know, if we fought our hearts out to try to oppose the the corrupt uh, Trudeau government's carbon tax, and the Supreme Court uh, backed him, we did all we could, but we'll fight on other issues. And then Ford, in a sense, still wins even if he loses in court, because again, the Conservative Party of Ontario, the the, the Progressive Conservatives, won't pay for any court challenges. It'll be it'll be the government of Ontario, which is of course belongs to all of us, and not just. The other element to this, too, is, I mean, this is obviously a broad baseball that Nanos has done here uh, among all Canadians, but the political parties themselves, Christo, they do their own polling, don't they, within their their support base. Uh, and, and they, I think, are probably far more interested in how their base is uh, feeling on this particular issue than they are in the general public. It, it, yeah, it, it really depends. I mean, I, you're, you're 100% right that, that parties... And, and interest groups do internal polling, um, and they might have information that's much better or more accurate or at least more targeted than what we see in public, uh, and they spend a lot of money to do it. Um, and so they have a good sense for who they're targeting. And you're right, on a lot of issues, it really is about looking at the base, or if not the base, then certain key demographics. So, for instance, 
Ford and his team might be looking at the kind of populations that really put him over the top this time and keeping those particular people happy. Why did they vote for me? And like why the people who voted, say, liberal in 2014, but switched to him, how do we keep those particular people? Because those people matter most of all. And, you know, it's, it's sad to say in some ways, but the loyalist of conservative voters, maybe they're not the concern of this one. Although there is something to be said about certain issues that you do want a broad opinion of the public, or at least a mixture of the two. And this goes beyond polling as well. Most parties now will do focus groups. If they're running an ad or they're debuting a particular policy or a policy platform piece, they'll have focus groups speak about it. And they can get a sense beyond just, do you support X or do you support Y? And you say, yes, no, maybe so. They can actually get narrative understandings of how people come to their decision. And that's very, very important. Sometimes more important than the answer itself. Because as you know, the, the answers can change. People aren't bound to those. But the thought processes give a lot of variables to, you know, a party or a government as they're trying to craft a policy or decide, you know, how far to push this. Do they, you know, if they, maybe Ford, if his data showed something differently, maybe he would feel it would now would be the time to back away from a court challenge. But there's something indicating it to him that there's value politically in, in going through with this, even though, again, you say nearly two-thirds of Ontarians oppose it. Christo Avelis at University of Toronto. Thanks as always, Christo. Great talking with you again today. Thanks for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.